Hello, this is Malia Warner. Welcome to Power Principles, the podcast. Today is episode 42, 10 things I didn't know about Brazil. Hi friends, I just got home from a trip to Brazil. And by just got home, I mean I've been off the plane for less than 24 hours. I tell you this to make you all jealous, which is strange because if I'm being completely honest, which I usually am, I did not want to go on this trip. But that's actually the topic for next week's podcast episode because I didn't want to go and I ended up having this amazing aha breakthrough experience in Brazil. And so next week I'm podcasting about recognizing and overcoming self-sabotage. Today's episode is 10 things I learned about Brazil, specifically Sao Paulo, that I didn't know before traveling there. Alert, warning, fun, interesting stories ahead. If you are not in the mood to hear some entertaining and even educational stories, you might want to click over to one of those depressing crime podcasts because fun stories ahead. First, before we dive in, the review of the week comes from Hitman99, which sounds like the topic of one of those true crime podcasts. Hitman99 says, I really recognize the gift that Malia has in speaking. She can articulate what she says really well. All things are in order and she sounds calm, but you can really hear passion in what is being spoken about. She is personable and comes across with a great feeling of empathy rather than sympathy, which in my opinion is more important. The content is logical and makes sense, and she has personal anecdotes that allows listeners to relate. Really incredible. Thank you, Hitman99, for taking the time to leave a review and for listening to the podcast. I'm glad you enjoy it. If you want to be the reviewer of the week, leave me a five-star review and tell me something you've learned or your favorite episode. Reviews are what help this podcast to appear when people are searching for inspirational content. It grows because of you. Thank you. And now the top 10 things I learned about Brazil that I did not know before I traveled there. Numero 10. Number 10. Brazil is a country of immigrants. So much like my home country, the United States of America, there are true native Brazilians, the native indigenous tribes such as the Guarani, Otherwise, the citizens there have descended mostly from immigrants, and there is a spirit of building, of enterprise, and a work ethic, and the people I met knew the stories of their ancestors. Before I left on this trip, I knew really hardly anything about Brazil, specifically about Sao Paulo, which is the city that we were going to. I'd heard that it was crowded, one of the most crowded cities on the planet Earth, and that it wasn't really safe. I didn't know Sao Paulo, you know, everyone hears of Rio de Janeiro, it's not the capital like Brasilia is, and so I had an impression of Sao Paulo being gringy and ghetto and high crime and that I would be stuck in my hotel and that I wouldn't feel safe to go explore on my own. And also I had the impression that probably no one there would know what gluten-free meant and that I wouldn't be able to communicate. And so I would be stuck in my hotel room eating lettuce leaves for seven days. So that's the mindset that I had before going into the trip. 
on the first day there, one of the business spouses arranged a personal tour for us. And I would really recommend this when you travel. It's not something that I would have ever done. I'm such a do-it-yourselfer that I wouldn't think to pay someone to show me their country. But today with Google reviews and TripAdvisor, it's easier and it's safer to find a tour guide. And this is how I met Doris Kurtzman, who showed up in her car to show me around Sao Paulo. And after my time with Doris, I was so in love with the city of Sao Paulo. I could hardly wait until Justin got back to the hotel and I could tell him everything that I learned. And I couldn't wait for the next day to hit the city again. And I think this is so true about most anything in life, that in order to love something, you just need to get to know it. I want to tell you a little bit Doris's story. She descends from immigrants. Her grandparents were Jews who escaped Poland at some point during Hitler's regime and the outbreak of World War II. They did not know where they were going. They got on a ship having no idea where the ship was headed, only that it was taking them out of Poland. And that is the true definition of fleeing or escaping, isn't it? Taking the gamble that any place you land will be better and safer than where you are. I would love to know the intricate details of their story, how they ended up on the ship, who they were with, what happened to their friends and family who decided not to go with them or who found a different way out of Poland. I only know what Doris told me, that her grandparents arrived in Brazil with nothing and found a way to work and carve out a living. So one of the very first people I met in Brazil was a descendant of Polish Jews. A couple of the other people that I met, Rogério, one of my husband's business partners, his great-grandparents fled from Syria due to a war in their homeland over a hundred years ago, and that is how he ended up coming to be a Brazilian. What is interesting is that in the past 10 years, as civil war once again has broken out in Syria, ever since the Arab Spring arrived in Syria in 2011, another wave of refugees has fled to Brazil. The UN Refugee Agency actually reports that Brazil has made it easier by issuing an open door policy. Their consulates in the Middle East issue special visas with simplified procedures to help the survivors of the war in Syria to travel to Brazil where they can present an asylum claim and have a chance to start over in a place away from the war that's been going on over eight years now and has driven something like five million people into exile. I also met Hernata, whose ancestors were immigrants from Russia, and another man whose grandparents immigrated from Lebanon. There is a large population of Lebanese immigrants in Brazil. The largest population of Lebanese outside of Lebanon is in Brazil. And that is true for a lot of countries, which we'll talk about in a minute. And I could feel a kinship to and at home in Brazil because, like the United States, it's such a melting pot of cultures and countries and ethnicities. It is a country, like the United States, that has been built by immigrants. Numero Navi, number nine, about the city of Sao Paulo. I learned so much about Sao Paulo. 
even to the point that I learned that Sao Paulo means St. Paul, which, duh, I could have figured that out if I would have just thought through it a little bit. Sao Paulo is the largest city in Latin America, larger than Mexico City. It has 18 to 19 million residents. I can't even describe that. As we were flying over Sao Paulo to the airport, the massive city, the miles and miles of skyscrapers and huge apartment buildings just kept going on and on and on with no end in sight. And it's not just one city center. It's not like flying over New York and seeing all the tall buildings concentrated into one space and you can still see the rivers and you can still see open space. You know, you can see an end to the massive skyscrapers. Sao Paulo went on forever. And you try to comprehend, to wrap your brain around the number of people in that space. So to try to put it into perspective, the population of Manhattan is 1.6 million people. The entire state of New York is 19 million people. And the entire state of New York is like 54,000 square miles. Or the population of Los Angeles is 4 million people in 500 square miles. This is more comparable. So in 500 square miles, Los Angeles has 4 million people. It's crowded. Los Angeles is crowded. You go there, you fill it, the traffic. It's, it's a busy, crowded place. So Sao Paulo in 500 square miles has 19 million people. So it's a little bit more square miles than Los Angeles and almost five times as many people. And yes, just as you imagine, traffic is an issue. So that being said, it didn't feel horribly crowded to me. We were out walking on the streets. We went to an open market. It felt very similar to walking down the streets of New York, driving around in the city. Traffic was crazy. Very few accidents. The way they drive, you would think that there would be accidents every minute of every day. And we did not, I think we saw one accident in the week that we were there. We were almost in one accident, but because they have to drive slow enough to get around, the drivers somehow make room and, and avoid most of the accidents. So definitely traffic is an issue, but I did not feel crowded by 19 million people. It's, it's still hard for me to wrap my brain around that. So Sao Paulo was founded January 25th, 1554. And the reason it was January 25th and not January 24th or January 26th is because January 25th is the day that Paul had his change of heart and became an apostle of Jesus Christ. So from the New Testament, if you remember that Paul had gone around, Paul had been Saul and he'd gone around um, attacking the church and attacking the Christians at the time. And January 25th marks his conversion. I don't know 
how we know that. I didn't know that. I don't know how they know it. It's not listed in the New Testament anywhere, but that's why the first official mass was held at the top of a hill of Sao Paulo by Catholic Jesuit missionaries and officially started Sao Paulo. So from the 1550s to about the 1700s, Sao Paulo, the population of Sao Paulo consisted of Portuguese immigrants who were escaping the poverty of Portugal and the indigenous people of Brazil. And then in the 1700s towards the 1800s, they discovered that Brazil was a good place to grow sugarcane and that they needed more labor to make these sugarcane plantations profitable. Which brings us to number eight, numero uitu. What I learned about Brazil is that like the United States, it was built by immigrants and slaves. The sugarcane plantation owners enslaved the indigenous natives and then still needed more labor. And so they brought captured slaves from Africa. Four million slaves were obtained by Brazil, 1.5 million more than any other country. This is interesting to me because in my mind, slavery and the Civil War and the abolitionist era was something unique to United States history. When Brazil was going through something very similar right about the same time. Slavery in Brazil was legally ended in 1888. And then Brazil began to rely upon European immigration labor. So Brazil went to countries, especially like Italy, where there was a war going on between the north and south of Italy. And they advertised that they would pay for Italians' voyage and their food for them to come and work in Brazil. So today, Brazil has the largest Italian population outside of Rome. However, once the Italians arrived in Brazil, the immigrants received very low salaries. They were expected to pay back their voyage and their food and found that it was very hard to pay off those debts. They worked in poor conditions, long working hours, were frequently ill-treated by their bosses. And because of this, in 1902, Italy enacted a decree prohibiting subsidized immigration to Brazil. So once again, Brazil found itself in a struggle to find cheap labor to support its main economic crop, which had evolved from sugar cane to now coffee and coffee plantations. And some other interesting things are happening all around the world, which are going to have an impact on what is today's population of Brazil. At about this time, the end of feudalism in Japan was generating great poverty in the rural populations. So Japanese were looking for other places to go for better living conditions. But prospects for Japanese people to migrate to other countries were limited. The United States had banned non-white immigration from some parts of the world in an exclusion clause of the Immigration Act, which was specifically targeted at the Japanese. But Brazil was looking for workers, and Japan had workers that needed a place to work. And so in 1907, the Brazilian governments and the Japanese government signed a treaty permitting Japanese migration to Brazil. Between 1917 and 1940, over 164,000 Japanese migrated to Brazil. 
75% of them going to Sao Paulo, where most of the coffee plantations were located. Now, at this point, I have to read this paragraph directly from Wikipedia. I think it is so fascinating when I see real life examples from the words of Wikipedia. Quoting Wikipedia here, quote, Brazil is home to the largest Japanese population outside of Japan, unquote. I saw that. There were Japanese-looking people speaking Portuguese everywhere. Back to Wikipedia, quote, Since the 1980s, a return migration has emerged of Japanese Brazilians returning to Japan, unquote. I have a real-life example of this. My children's Japanese teacher, Sensei Bellini, was born in Brazil. Then as a teenager, she moved back to Japan and learned to speak Japanese. So she is a beautiful Asian-looking woman from Brazil whose native language is Portuguese, who learned to speak Japanese as a teenager and now lives in Utah County and teaches in English. Sensei Bellini is spearheader of Japanese education in the state of Utah. She is doing really cool things with Japanese classes here. And lastly, back to Wikipedia, quote, More recently, a trend of interracial marriage has taken hold among Brazilians of Japanese descent, with the racial intermarriage rate approximated at 50% and increasing, unquote. Yes, I saw that too, everywhere we went. Japanese married to Brazilian. And I tell you, those children are gorgeous. So the number eight thing about Brazil I learned that I didn't know before was the slavery history of Brazil and how the abolishment of slavery in Brazil resulted in the immigration of so many different cultures and populations to Brazil. On to number seven. Numero sete. Number seven is a story about the meaning of language. Did you know that English is not taught in school in Brazil? So if anyone is going to learn English in Brazil, they pretty much learn it on their own. They figure out a way to take classes or they learn it from TV. Our tour guide, Dora, spoke such good English that we had a really fun language encounter. Here's the story. I asked Doris if she also spoke Polish, if she learned to speak Polish from her grandparents. Remember, they escaped Poland at the time of World War II. And she shook her head and explained to me that she'd never learned Polish and that it wasn't until later in life that she even asked her grandmother to speak to her in Polish. And at that time, she realized how easy it would have been for her to learn Polish as a child and how much she regretted not learning it. And then we commiserated about the follies of youth, how we didn't appreciate what our grandparents could teach us when they were alive. But Dora said that she did learn Hebrew because as a youth, she attended synagogue and studied the Torah in Hebrew and has largely forgotten it today. She said, I hated those classes. They were so boring. It was always something that I just had to do, that I had to go pass off my assignments in Hebrew. Today, she says the only phrase she can really remember in Hebrew is 
to say in Hebrew that I cannot speak Hebrew. So when she has an Israeli tour group, she knows enough to tell them that she can't speak Hebrew. So in Hebrew, she tells them, I can't speak Hebrew. And they love it. They love that in Hebrew, she can say, I can't speak Hebrew. So Doris told me, so she can't remember Hebrew anymore. She told me that she can't really consider herself Jewish. She married a Catholic, and even though her sons did their bar mitzvahs, she hasn't attended synagogue in years. So then I taught Doris a cool little English expression. I taught her the suffix ish. You know, when you add ish to the end of the word, it means you are so-so at something. It's not exact. For example, if I'll be there at five-ish, I'm not going to be there exactly at five. It might be before five. It might be after five. It will be five-ish. Or if you say that a woman is tall-ish, she isn't exactly tall. She's just close to or somewhat tall. If I'm hungry-ish, then I'm not exactly starving, but I could eat. So I'm explaining this handy suffix to Doris, and she says, oh, there's a TV show called Blackish, and I never understood what it meant. And I was like, yeah, that's what it meant. So I told her that she could call herself Jew-ish. She's not exactly practicing, but she's definitely culturally and ethnically a Jew. So therefore, she's Jew-ish. And she loved that. I got this awesome colloquialism through my daughter who has a college roommate who is a non-actively practicing Jew and she calls herself, she refers to herself as Jew-ish. I just love clever people. I love plays on language, plays on words. So number seven maybe isn't something that I learned so much in Brazil, but now something that Doris has learned about English that you can add ish to something. Okay, number six, numero seis. I learned that the word for flag is bandera, which is similar to Spanish bandera. So you know the actor Antonio Banderas is how we say it in English. Antonio Banderas, who was born in Spain, his name translates as Antonio Flags. Number six, now you know, you'll never forget it. Number five, numero cinco, the mountains. Oh, I have learned what it is like to travel through huge mountains. Yes, I live in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. Let me finish. To travel through huge mountains, 100% covered in tropical green trees and foliage and tunnels. We drove through mountain tunnels to the extent I have never seen before. When my family drives up Provo Canyon towards Deer Creek and there's that little tunnel and we hold our breath through that tunnel and it's hardly holding your breath for anything. If we had held our breath driving through those tunnels, we would be dead and I would not be here telling you that number five is that I've learned the experience of driving through mountain tunnels that go on for five minutes. Tunnels dug straight through huge mountains that are carpeted in rainforest. And my perception of the word breathtaking has taken on a completely new meaning. Number four, numero cuatro. 
I learned that the number one religion in Brazil is not Catholicism. It is soccer. And what team you cheer for matters a lot. So Brazil, having won five World Cup trophies more than any other country in the world, is the soccer capital of the globe. There are basically four main soccer clubs in Brazil. And which one you cheer for really determines who you associate with and what fights you're going to end up with at the dinner table. So team number one, and I'm not listing these in any particular order other than the order that I first learned about them. Team number one is Corinthians. And you would never be able to tell it from the pronunciation, but Corinthians is Corinthians. They're named after Corinthians, like in the New Testament. They are the most popular soccer team in Sao Paulo, the second most popular soccer team in Brazil. The Corinthians regards itself as being the team of the people, and it gathers its supporters from the city's working class suburbs, and their soccer jerseys are white and black. Second is Team Palmeiras, which as far as I can tell is translated as palm trees. They are Corinthians' biggest rival. The club is traditionally linked with the city's Italian community, having been founded by a group of Italian laborers in the early 20th century. They play in green and white jerseys, and their nickname, Verdao, means big greens. The third team is Sao Paulo. They're known as the tricolor team for their white, red, and black jerseys. Sao Paulo is the city's second most supported club, and it is one of Brazilians' most successful. Number four is Santos. And the team Santos is not technically part of Sao Paulo's Iron Trio because Santos is a city outside of Sao Paulo. However, Santos is one of the most famous soccer clubs in the world, not just in Brazil, but in the world. Team Santos has a great nickname. They're called Peixe which means fish, fantastic, and their all-white jerseys are recognized around the world. The Santos Club is famous largely to Pele, who is the greatest soccer player of all time, who played for Santos 18 years. He first arrived as an unknown 16-year-old and left when he was 34 years old as a global superstar. Pele won three World Cups as a Santos player and took his club to an astonishing 26 trophies, including two South American championships and two world championships. So my tour guide, Doris, she was a fan of Sao Paulo. She called herself a Paulista because she supported the Sao Paulo soccer team. Her husband and sons are diehard Palmeiras because... Palmeiras were founded by Italian Catholic laborers, and she married an Italian Catholic. Doris told me that she's pretty much given up soccer because her family gets so crazy about the games that they've pretty much ruined it for her. Man, I relate. I feel that way about BYU football. Oops, did I just say that? In any case, in Sao Paulo, in all of Brazil, soccer, or futebol, is a big deal. And you can guess what souvenir my husband brought home for our teenage boys. You got it. Soccer jerseys. So number four, in my trip to Brazil, I learned 
a lot more about soccer than I ever expected, and I wasn't even really trying. Number three, numero tres. I learned, and I thought this was so interesting, that gambling in Brazil, in the whole country, is illegal. It has been illegal since 1946. So the hotel we stayed in had a game night, basically a casino night like they do on college campuses. We each got a hundred, not dollars, a hundred amount of fake money. Now, I do not play casino games. I don't know how to play poker and the employees didn't speak English. So I was trying to learn how to play poker for the first time ever. And I was trying to learn it with the help of Portuguese explanations. Somehow it worked and it was so much fun. Fortunately, before we went, my husband and I studied up on Portuguese numbers and plain blackjack is a great Portuguese number practice. So from quote unquote gambling in Brazil, I learned Portuguese numbers. And my favorite numbers are nine, Navi, 20, Vinci, 15, Quinci, and 14, Catorce. And my hotel room number, which I had to say over and over every time I checked out a towel or went to the breakfast buffet, was 1429, and it sounds so cool. 1429. And I'll add here, along with learning favorite numbers, that I really fell in love with the Portuguese language. I thought that Portuguese was just kind of a knockoff of Spanish, and it really is a mix of, the words are a mix of French and Spanish, but the pronunciation is so different. And the pronunciation to me sounds quite Italian. Everything's very exaggerated and lots of chi, yandi, yada, just that sing-songy Italian. And so of course I came home absolutely convinced that I'm going to practice Portuguese every day and learn to speak the language fluently. I'm already off to such a great start, right? Because I can say, catorce vincinavi. Number two, numero dois. I learned that Sao Paulo basically has a central park like New York, which is so unexpected in the middle of that hugely populated city to have this enormous park. And it's especially unusual because with the massive growth of population over the last hundred years, most old buildings or historic sites have not been preserved. Out of necessity, they were torn down and replaced with bigger buildings. Except in the city, there is this huge park. And the story is that it was such swampland that nothing could be built there. And then in about the 1950s, the president decided to bring in some foreign trees like eucalyptus that drink a lot of water. And now it is a tree park with trees from all over the world. And if you know me, you know I love trees. So the day after my tour with Doris, when I fell in love with the city of Sao Paulo, I couldn't wait to take Justin to the Parque Iberapuera. And we walked half the park that night. And guess what? We felt perfectly safe. There were so many people jogging, sprinting, biking, walking with their families, pushing babies in the strollers. And the park had the coolest thing, adult exercise playgrounds. 
I've never seen this anywhere else. They had like parkour equipment, like ninja warrior equipment. There were chin-up bars and these kind of leg press machines and rowing machines and adults exercise playground area. I think it's a phenomenal idea. And many buildings in and around the park are painted by the Brazilian artist Cobra, K-O-B-R-A, like the snake, but with a K, who does this really cubic, colorful, geometric style of art. And you can see his art many places as you travel around Sao Paulo. So number two, I learned that Sao Paulo has a central park and that it has a really lively culture for art and for music. This brings us to number one, numero uma. I saved the best for last. This was mind-blowing, life-changing, deep. Are you ready? Why this is number one has to do with a lot of things coming together kind of full circle. So if you remember from episode 19 and 20, I talked about not limiting summer screen time and instead of focusing on a limited screen mindset that my family was going to focus on learning things, practicing things. And then at the end of the summer, we were going to have a family shine time when everyone could share what they'd learned and practiced over the summer. And then in episode 34, I talked about how after our shine time, we took everyone out to eat at Rodizio Grill, which is a Brazilian restaurant. Hmm, plot thickening. This is before school starts. And I'm watching my family and they keep coming back to the table with these little round cheesy bread rolls and they look so delicious and I can't eat them. They're not gluten-free, but I'm just salivating over them. So lo and behold, I arrive in Brazil and our hotel has a continental breakfast. This is not a U.S. American continental breakfast with some dried out muffins and a bowl of overripe bananas and mushy apples and some orange juice from concentrate. This is a spread of sliced melon, passion fruit, pineapple, kiwi, guava, I could go on and on, a rainbow assortment of freshly squozen juice, plus a spread of cheeses, sausages, eggs, bacon, and real European pastries, and a tray of hot from the oven Brazilian cheese bread which I won't eat, neither will I eat the pastries because I don't want to be sick to my stomach the whole time that I am there. Then after our breakfast, I leave for my tour with Doris. And part of the tour, we stop at an open market and the other spouse with me wants to order a freshly squozen juice because their juice there is so amazing. So we're in the market, sitting on bar stools, sipping our juices at a counter with a display of traditional Brazilian on-the-go foods for sale, most of which are breaded and fried, and also include pau de queijo, or Brazilian cheese bread. So Doris points out each of the things and explains which is her favorite, the breaded chicken. And I say, I'll buy it for her since it's her favorite. And she politely declines, but says that no, I should buy it and try it for myself. And so then I start explaining about being gluten-free and the woes of the Brazilian cheese bread. 
and Doris tells me the most life-changing information of our entire tour. Brazilian cheese rolls are gluten-free. They are made with tapioca flour. Doris knows this because even though she is Jew-ish, one time she was fasting for, and I thought she said Ramadan, but that's a Muslim holiday, so maybe she said Rosh Hashishan. But it was a fast during which she didn't eat flour. And her brother, who is not Jew-ish, but is exactly Jew and Orthodox Jew, informed her that she could eat bao de queijo or Brazilian cheese bread because it didn't have flour. Then Doris asked the man behind the counter to confirm if indeed these particular cheese breads had any flour, and he said no. And I bought one and ate it on the spot. This marvelous thing happened on my first full day in Brazil, which means that for six days after, I ate bao de queijo every day. What would my trip have been like if we hadn't stopped for juice at that cafe or started talking breaded and fried foods and Jewish fasts and flour-free bread options? It would still have been a marvelous trip, but not nearly as tasty. This makes me wonder what other yummy morsels of life I miss out on because I don't know about them or because I didn't ask. Months ago, when I was deliberating about whether or not to get an airplane ticket and accompany my husband on his business trip to Brazil, my daughter said, of course you're going to Brazil with dad because it would be ridiculous if you missed the opportunity. What if I hadn't listened to my daughter when she said that? I kind of think this is the summary of what life is all about. If I had to summarize the meaning of life, I would say it is this. Life is about getting an education, about gathering experiences, and to find the love in the midst of all of it. I loved this lesson learned from my Jew-ish Polish-Brazilian tour guide, now friend, during a trip that I didn't want to take. That life has all kinds of delicious bites for me to partake of if I open myself to the possibility. And my friends, that is what I learned traveling to Brazil. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening. I don't know what you are up to today. Me, piles of post-trip laundry, and trying to remember how to prepare food for myself and clean up dishes. Whatever you're doing today, will you remember to go to Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star review, and share why you like listening to Power Principles, the podcast. Most of all, today I'm going to be looking up baking instructions for Brazilian cheesy bread, which I think my gluten-free sister gave me a recipe for a while ago and told me it would change my life, and I filed it somewhere on the office desk and didn't listen. Now, I know better. I'll meet you back here next week for an episode about the real aha breakthrough I experienced in Brazil, and no, it's not about cheesy bread. See you next week. Bye-bye, my friends.